you remember last week's talk, we said one of the points was, uh, you know, it's, you need to make course correction, you know, halftime course correction. And, uh, you know, as an illustration of having to sometimes make course corrections in our marriage. And then what happens in the Super Bowl to perfectly illustrate it that afternoon, right? Well, if you were watching the Super Bowl last week and you made a different choice than the Huff House. See, the choice in the Huff House was we have four children and it's snowing outside and it's adding up and we've been telling Preston we'll go out soon. He's our six-year-old. And it just, we couldn't put it off any longer than halftime. So I hit record on the DVR and headed outside because the game was over anyway, right? Yeah, not so much as I came back in at around 7 o'clock, noticed the DVR had turned off, and I'm like, is the game really over? I thought I saw it in all the house windows that were still watching it while we were out playing in the snow alone. And so I turned on the TV, and it's tied. Like, they just scored, like, the two-point conversion to tie it. And so I'm, I'm mad because the DVR stopped recording. So I have no idea what happened. And then I'm shocked because a 25-point comeback just happened. And yet I'm going, wow, I'm glad that was one of our points in the message this morning, that you can make halftime adjustments. And that was like the Lord just wanting to prove that that works not just in a game of football, it works in our marriages. And I was pretty excited about that. Hope you've had a chance to either listen to that talk or be praying for your spouse because you were here or with your spouse because you were here and it's made an impact in your marriage this week. Not only have I heard good things about that from those who are present, but those who are listening online. And I imagine we're going to have some online listeners again today because if you're in a crisis in your marriage, this is probably a tough series to listen to. Or if you've your marriage is over, you're widowed, or you're, you know, you've been divorced, you're sitting here going, okay, this is, there's some tough stuff to swallow. You know why the, the scripture is an equal opportunity offender, and it makes us stare at our reality. And sometimes that's easier to listen to than to be present during, but we're going to dive in because we're courageous, right? We're going to continue today unpacking really four characteristics in scripture that I think are going to be game changers to enrich your marriage, to uh, maybe restore your marriage, to reconcile your marriage, to uh, realize that the work that's needed in marriage. Um, And I think it applies to all of us, no matter our relational scenario today, including students. Warning, precursor, uh, there, you know, maybe a couple moments where it's PG-13? Anyway, just saying, uh, in, the, in today's talk and probably in two weeks for sure, um, we're going to have a, a frequently asked question service, and that will be PG-13. It, we're just going to be real and answer the questions that came in, and that could be awkward for somebody. It, it does get more awkward. So I was a youth pastor for 13 years before we started Open Life, and it is a little funny to preach with your daughters in the front row telling some of the stories you tell, like today. But anyway, so um, God, do your stuff, because that's, that's all that I can say. Uh, 
we had a pretty exciting week this week as a uh, lead pastoral team. Uh, we went down to a, a marriage training in Dallas, Texas. It was a whirlwind trip. Just there, in training two days in a row, came back. Had time for in and out maybe two days. But anyway, we, we, uh, we did uh, have, make good decisions while we were there. And, um, and we sat in trainings that like, resonated with us for a ministry that we're hoping to roll out over the course of the next few months that would really, I think, impact marriages that really full roll out as like a three to five year plan. And uh, our minds are still wrapping around it. But thank you for anybody who prayed about that. Uh, if you follow our blog and, and, and read that and are praying. Or if you just uh, noticed on Instagram feed or whatever that we were there. But I, uh, today's talk was really inspired a lot by that. And uh, uh, is just, we saw firsthand testimony of so many couples who courageously walked out a Christ-centered scriptural approach at enriching or restoring their marriages, and it was unreal how uh, beautiful it was and touching and moving. And uh, so much so that I was like a gusher sitting there in my seat when we were just singing that worship song. You know, oh, how beautiful your love is. You know, your mercy flowing through me. Like, that can be real for all of us, no matter how broken or hurt we are, even in our relationships. So, uh, wow, cool stuff. We're still digesting everything we, we grabbed a hold of, but we learned some things there. So here's a few stats for you that I think are interesting. Some fact-checking on marriage, since it seems like everybody on Facebook wants to post fact-checking stuff lately. I'll just stay off the subject that they're fact-checking. But uh, these are not alternative facts. These are real. That was free. Uh, people who marry between the age of 28 and 32 split up the least with it in their marriages. Interesting, right? Uh, in 1960, though, 59% of Americans or American adults age 18 to 29 were married. Today, that's only 20%. Isn't that weird? Weird statistic. Okay, how about this? What city, what city in America do you think has the highest divorce rate? No, it's not Hollywood, right? It's not Los Angeles. D.C., Washington, D.C. Vegas is a good guess, though. You'd think, right? Sin City and all. But maybe they just don't share it because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I think that's what happens. Um, but... Washington, D.C., they have a 31% uh, divorce rate, which is interesting because wouldn't you think the divorce rate in America is higher than that? So I just thought that was an interesting stat. That's like the highest. So um, 75% of people who marry partners from an affair eventually divorce. People who endure uh, more than 45-minute commute are 40% more likely to divorce. Yowza. We're in a commuter city, and I, I, there's some long commutes, so I'm praying for marriages. Uh, those who cohabitate before engagement are more likely to divorce than those who wait for marriage. Okay? Which is the most expensive city in America to get married? Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah, New York. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? $80,000 weddings. $80,000. Girls, 
we're not moving to Manhattan because I'm not, I have three girls. You kidding? I'm doing the math. That's painful. I can't afford that. Um, interesting, uh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Women, if you for sure want to break up or get a divorce, all you have to do is win an Academy Award for Best Actress or uh, Best Supporting Actress because it's called the Oscar curse. 100% of any of the best actresses have either had uh, their relationship break up because of infidelity or they've experienced divorce right following that award. Guess that comes at a price, right? Isn't that crazy? Some interesting statistics that we saw on screen or read in the books, and who knows where they got them, but I'm sure they're not alternative facts. So we'll move forward. Uh, it's interesting when you look at that and you just go, man, I don't want to be some of those statistics. Well, there's a core way that you won't end. Uh, I think we could just say, really, Jesus. <laughs> but we've... Over the course of like looking at marriages and, and, and research of those who are involved in the marriage arena and they're dissecting like what are key characteristics in the midst of marriages that would allow people to make it through the rough patches or continue on the good patches. We came up with four common characteristics that make marriages better. So today uh, we're going to look at those. The first characteristic is Christ. There's a renewed spiritual vitality because the approach a relationship takes is Christ-centered. Doesn't mean relationship's going to be perfect. Christ isn't the magic potion that makes all relationships perfect. Still takes our work, as we looked at last week. But God's plan for humanity is Christ. And without Jesus, we'll not be able to sustain our relationship with our creator, you know, last week's verse was, you know, we need to take care of ourselves and, and each other. It's like this mirror, right, in our relationship that we're commanded to, to work at us so we can work at us. And uh, uh, so anyway, that's, that's the reality here. When we get married, we're just two sinners walking into a relationship together. And we're usually in the lovey-dovey stage. And glossing over all the sin. And sure, that sin will be taken care of. Oh, no worries. Yeah, okay, because we're going to get married. It'll fix it. And then we get married. And we realize when the googly stage is over. That uh, we brought in all that baggage with us into the marriage. And now we either have to continue to like hide the baggage or deal with it. And it's a lot easier to deal with it when Christ is your center. And uh, the season that you're in that love effect stage or whatever is usually only a year and a half or two years as uh, I've been reading in a lot of the marriage books. So all of a sudden you get out of that everything's glossed over moment and you realize, what did I get myself into, right? <laughs> Who in the world did I marry? What is this? And then you realize, wait, 
Who am I and why am I bringing in all this stuff I grew up with? The servanthood of courtship turns into modeled patterns that you saw in your family as a kid. And you're like, I'm turning into my dad. Or you say, I'm turning into my mom. And you're just in a scenario, right? It's like crazy. It happens as much as we don't want it. But you, you got to be committed to spend a lifetime together and work through it. And so in Jesus, we'll be able to bring this dead love to life, ultimately, because Jesus is all about resurrection and resurrection of relationships as well as our own lives. John 15, 5 says what we sang in that song, How Beautiful, just a moment ago, that his love will flow through us, right? Because it says, yes, I am the vine, Jesus speaking, I am the vine, you are the branches, those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit For apart from me, you can do nothing. But it's so interesting when we have trials in our marriage, we start to read self-help books that that have great content. We'll look at uh, the, the five love languages in just a moment. I'll toss those your direction. But it's like, you look at this stuff and you're going, this is incredible. And, and that's even a Christian book. But you're like, we, we focus on these practicals and we forget to go, Jesus, I need to come to you first for help here. And deal, like how do I deal with what I'm facing? Because in the vine, his love flowing through us, we can handle anything we're facing. But if we try to do it apart from Jesus, follow the advice of friends in the world, we're going to get in trouble. It's going to be too much for us to bear. It's tempting to try to do the work of marriage without Jesus. And that's not our desire for you. Even as a follower of Christ, we do that. We just, we... We, we forget to pray about it. We forget to allow transformation to occur. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And if Jesus isn't in it from the beginning, how are we going to give him glory for the transformation that takes place? So I, I just say, man, when you hit the ice in a relationship, when you hit that moment where it's just like, what happened? Run to Christ. Run to Jesus. Marriages that make it do so through Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus, though, does not guarantee your life will be unhurt in relationships. Disclaimer. The second characteristic that's in marriages that make it and that marriages that get better uh, is circle. This is interesting. I'll just toss it out, right? Circle on the blank or fill it in on your app. They see themselves as their biggest marriage problem. Seeing ourselves as the biggest marriage problem will help the marriage turbulence, if you will. We had turbulence both ways back and forth from Dallas. And I do not do well. I mean, I've got those motion band uh, things on to help as it is. And, you know, I'm so skinny, I have a lot of room in my seat. But uh, um, that's just for the podcast listeners, if, they're not, if they've never seen a picture of me. Or maybe they're seeing a picture from years ago when I was a teenager. But, the, uh, you know, it was just uncomfortable. And you're, like, shaking, and it's going to, you know, and they're stopping service because it's so... Turbulence is not comfortable. But relationships have turbulence. And how are we dealing with it? Like, do we have a mechanism to deal with turbulence? And, and, and this is what's interesting. When marriage turbulence hits, who do we blame? The pilot, the other person. 
Think of Adam and Eve at the beginning of the Bible. If you've ever started a year-long reading plan through the Bible, you've read this part. You've made it this far. Adam and Eve, first man, first woman. They're told not to eat from the tree in the garden. Adam has not eaten from the tree in the garden, but Eve is, is led astray by Satan in the form of a snake. And she takes of the fruit, eats it. It tastes good. She gives some to Adam. He eats it. God comes. They hide from God. God confronts lovingly, truthfully. And they're like, what did Adam do? Did he go, oh, yeah, it was totally my bad. I ate the fruit. No, what does he say? She did it. It was her. It's her fault that we're here now and living in shame. You know, the blame game starts. And the fingers are pointed at each other. But guess what? Adam chose to eat the fruit. Doesn't matter who gave it to him. He ate it. He knew what he was eating. He knew what he was getting into. They were both to blame. Both parties were at work in their sin scenario. And that was the original sin that we still deal with. And it's degradation of the world and all this stuff. Matthew 7 says this in verse 3. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye? When you have a log in your own, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye, when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. It starts with you. Right? It hints towards the circle. So this is what I want you to imagine. Imagine you're on a warm beach. It's not freezing cold like outside. You're there on a warm beach, and you've got a walking stick. And you take that walking stick, and you plant it in the sand, and you spin around, and you make a circle. The work involved in making a marriage better happens inside the circle you just made. That's where the work needs to be done. The work that needs to be done to be a great husband or wife, those of you who are single, happens inside that circle. Do work on yourself and your relationship with Jesus now so you're ready for the future. If you're in turbulence in your marriage, draw the circle and start looking at yourself. How can you get in right relationship wholly and dependently with Jesus it's the work is yours to do. Identify your sins involved. Identify what you can do in the relationship to make it better instead of blame, blame, blame. Even if there's lots of blame to be handed out. Like even if 95% of the blame is on the other side, the 5% work there first. But she, she had the affair, Pastor. Well, she didn't care for herself enough, so I was tempted and attracted to other people. That's why I stumbled. It was her. She needed to go to the gym. He didn't love me anymore, so that's why I found someone who would love me and at the gym. And, or he was, he was the addict, not me. All those scenarios are very real scenarios. And we all can play a part in our own role and preparing ourselves. Well, you neglected your marriage and left the door open for temptation. Right? And we can point the, the spouse's fault and blame game all you want. And 
Maybe you stopped expressing love to one another and they found affection somewhere else. And uh, maybe they fell out of love. I already said, and, you know, the love factor only lasts so long. Listen to this excerpt from uh, the Five Love Languages book. It says, unfortunately, the eternality of the in love experience is fiction, not fact. The late psychologist, Dr. Dorothy Tenov, conducted long-range studies on the love phenomenon, the in-love phenomenon. After studying scores of couples, she concluded that the average lifespan of romantic obsession is two years. If it is a secretive love affair, it may last a little longer. Eventually, however, we all descend from the clouds and plant our feet on earth again, and our eyes are open, and we see the, the warts of the other person, her unendearing quirks are now merely annoying. His sharp sense of humor now wounds and those little bumps we overlooked when we were in love now become huge mountains. I mean, you read stuff like that and you go, oh, so love is blind, right? And who's at fault in giving into that? us, the way we're made, the way we're designed. We're emotional beings, so we need people around us, but we need to deal with us and recognize what we can do in this love scenario. You know, lots of relationships that are in turbulence get to a moment where they say, well, we're not in love anymore. Many would say, well, I was never in love maybe, right? So they take the route, well, I was never in love. And for me, and I got to tell you, I learned some things reading. We've read a bunch (laughs) before this series. I'm actually on information overload, and I'm not a marriage expert, by far. But I read through the five love languages for the first time. And uh, a great book, a great book. I mean, you could just go way off stray and not even focus on Jesus and just try to, like, speak somebody else's language or dialect. But the reality is this... This Dr. Chapman went through and, and analyzed the different love languages of couples and realized we often speak the love language we saw our parents speaking to one another and don't take the time ourselves to learn how to speak the love language and discipline ourselves to speak the love language of our spouse. And so we communicate in the wrong way. I'll illustrate. I'll walk through them real fast because it's the work we have to do inside the circle to learn how to speak the love language and fill the love tank as we talked about last week, of our spouse. As a spouse, we need to learn one of the five. Like, words of affirmation is one of the love languages. If, you, if your love is fired up by somebody complimenting you, not just to your face, but you hear them talking good about you to other people, it's probably you, right? It's like, man, they're just so amazing. I just love how they, and you're just in the room, just like your tank is getting filled up when you hear them talking about you. You're like, yes. Or, this is me. This is me. I'm confessing. If you're in a room and you hear your spouse talking negative about you, or you've heard about your spouse being in a room talking negative about you, and your tank just goes, and it's emptied. Probably word of affirmation is pretty huge for you. Now listen to this. We did the survey, the marriage survey that a bunch of people responded to. Women, this is big for men. The question we asked the men was, what can your wife do to 
you know, love you, to respect you, as the Bible challenges us to do to one another. And uh, this is a big deal for men, that they wouldn't be talked down about or bad about when you're in the company of other women or your family. Interesting, huh? That's a big deal for people. They need positive words of affirmation. The other language, quality time. That means 20 minutes a day, face-to-face, no digital devices, not sitting watching a TV, you know. But I spent an hour with her. We watched the latest episode of 24, right? Uh, That doesn't work. You're not with each other having a conversation, finding out how your week went. Quality time is, I just don't feel like we have enough time. If that's what you're saying in your mind, I just miss, I don't feel in love anymore because we don't spend time together. Quality time is probably your love language. Well, what does that mean? Maybe you've been speaking words of affirmation as the love, trying to fill your spouse's love tank, but their love language is quality time, not words of affirmation. It's going to take you setting everything down and spending time with one another. How about receiving gifts? Interesting, in reading the book, I could tell the ones that were not our love languages in our home. Dana, my wife, for those of you who don't know us, uh, is, that's not her love language. In fact, if I buy flowers on Valentine's when they're more expensive, I get in big trouble. It's so funny. It doesn't matter the value of the gift. If, if somebody has the, the, the love language of receiving gifts, any expression or token of a gift is just going to make their love tank get so filled up and they're like, I am so loved, here I am, honey, right? Um, but if you cringe at the thought of buying a gift for somebody or they, they just, they get it and they're like, ah, not my style, I'll return it. That's me. Uh, then, then that's probably not their love language. That's the, the hint, right? So the, the fourth love language is acts of service. So this is doing stuff. This is... Um, Helping fold the laundry or changing a diaper or giving the kids a bath or, you know, just giving your spouse 20 minutes of silence. So men, from the survey that we took, uh, on the marriage survey from each other here at Open Life, guess what? Your wives are screaming out that they have acts of service as a love language. Change a diaper, pick up some toys, give a bath. And the end of the night's going to be awesome. I'm just going to say that right now. But if you skip that process and try to get to the end of the night, if you know what I'm saying, kids, plug your ears, then you uh, are in trouble at the end of the night because somebody's not happy that you didn't help. Get off your keister and help, right? So that's the acts of service love language. Um, You might think the Valentine's roses are what's going to crank up the tractor in that home, but really... Do some chores, right? So that's uh, that project that they asked you to do a year and a half ago. Get her done so you can get her done, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, I said that out loud. Moving up the rating, the final language is physical touch. So uh, physical touch is what it sounds like, kind of. This can be holding a hand while walking. This can be... uh, 
uh, as simple as watching TV, holding a hand, or, or just being there together. Touch, the sense of touch is a very powerful thing in our life, let alone those whose love language is physical touch. Now guys think their love language is physical touch, right? Because they like something. But it's not necessarily true. Like their, their love language may not be physical touch just because they like sex, But uh, the reality is, um, if your love language is physical touch, all physical touch leads up to that cue of sex. Now, singles, if somebody's love language is touch, it does not equal sex. Got it? Right? No ringy, no dingy. And you can figure that out later. Moving on. Without Jesus, even knowing your love language will not do a thing to heal your marriage. It'll benefit it for a season. But if Jesus isn't that power and that glue and that restoring center of your home, it doesn't matter how much you speak the right love language. Your heart's still not right inside the circle. And it's going to be a challenge to make your marriage grow. Work on the person in the circle And part of that work is not teaching the other person to speak your language. It's you learning the other person's language to speak it for them. They'll catch on. They'll follow suit. Does that make sense? Work on you first. Third characteristic. Committed. This is the biggest one, right? This is like why marriages that started way long ago... uh, knew the commitment level of marriage compared to us now. You're ruthlessly committed. Marriages that get better are ruthlessly committed to marriage. Matthew 19, 6 says, Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. God's plan is reconciliation if it's humanly possible. That's tough to swallow. But the vows we say at the altar... God takes incredibly seriously. Marriage was God's original design, and therefore, it's inseparable in the biblical context. And when we use Scripture as our guide, we're going to learn that we have to be ruthlessly committed to marriage. Imagine you're in a room for a moment with lots of doors. And these are dangerous doors because they're all open when you get married. There's a door called affair, physical or emotional. There's a door called work and hobby, right? Giving yourself completely to work and hobby. There's a door called living undivorced, a term we heard in Dallas that really resonated. It's like where your marriage turns into just being roommates or good friends but not any longer spouses living in the same, under the same roof, but not married, undivorced. There's the door of separated, most dangerous door of all, because it gives the freedom necessary for divorce. And then there's the door of pornography, purely a selfish tool that hinders intimacy. It's where it gets awkward. All these doors, all of them open. We have choices to make. 
I remember finding, this dates me, but I remember finding a stash of videos and magazines in my parents' room as a kid. And I didn't know what to do with what happened in me when I saw the content of said magazines, naked people. Um, so I was really trying to process this, and, and it was a while before our parents found out we found the dirty little secret in our home. To make it worse, we found out that this was a tool that our parents were trying to use. It had been my dad's issue that he brought into the marriage to then try to uh, help their sex life in their marriage. By the way, that does not work. And this, this tool really created destruction all down our family. A family with three boys that discovered said stash. Nowadays, it's even easier to walk in on a dirty little secret, write in your own email or on your computer or on your phone, for goodness sake. So I just pray for this generation. But we stumbled up. Man, this was, this was brutal for us as kids. And it became uh, temptation. It became an addiction. It became false images and unrealistic scenarios that impacts me to this day, even though I've been free for a long time from that exposure. But boy, I tell you what, it has a lifetime impact. And becoming addicted to that kind of thing. Both men and women are dealing with this. But you can get free from this temptation. You can heal your marriage if this is what you have brought into it. It destroys intimacy and you need healing so that you can purify your marriage. And God can help. God can help. I just look at this and I go, don't pick any of these doors. Close these doors. Determine to put a lock on these doors. And no matter what, never walk through them. Don't walk through these open doors. Because this generation, the world we live in, is going to invent new doors to tempt you to walk through. Well-intended people will recommend you walk through the doors. But don't walk through them no matter what. Take all the options off the table. Research shows that committed couples will make every effort to lock those doors up and never walk through them. Fourth and final characteristic, community. Interesting enough, those whose marriages are better are fully known by others. Their marriage, their junk, their mess is known. They live an open life. Free plug for the name of the church. Okay, anyway, but open life, right? This right here might be your biggest awe today. Ah, 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 aha, not an ah, ah. I don't know what an ah, ah would be, but I have a feeling that's, we're going to talk about that in two weeks. Anyway, moving on. We are not designed to do life alone. Life is a team sport. Marriages are a team sport. We have to have confidants to talk to. We have to be able to talk to people who can hold confidential our struggles, pray for us, love us through the tumultuous, like turbulence of marriage. Because we're going to make stupid choices. None of us are without sin. 
We're going to hit the bumps in the road, and there's lots of them. In fact, this isn't in your notes. You might want to jot it on the side. But 1 Corinthians 7.28 gives us a promise about marriage. Paul, the apostle, wrote this. Those who get married at this time will have troubles. Congratulations. A promise in Scripture. What? Yeah, it's in the Bible. You will have trouble. It's going to happen. you got to learn how to get through those. you got to be not only committed, not only Christ-centered, but you have to have community around you to surround you in those moments of selfishness that you choose along the way. Being connected and deeply relational. This is why we do groups here at Open Life. Group sign-ups will be live this week, and they'll be, you know, we have some of them displayed on a computer back there. Don't try to sign up, or you'll all become like the one person's account signing up over and over again. But, uh, you know, just kind of, you can access it on your, your app or go online. We'll have physical sign-up sheets next week. But just, I challenge you, get in community with others so that you can dialogue out. Not gossip about your partner or your spouse, right? That deflates the whole word of affirmation. But work through transparently your life so that you can build up your marriage. Make marriage better. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. That's what community does. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. There's just times where we need to come alongside someone and say, you know what? You have to tell the truth in your marriage, man. What are you thinking? And have a community of people that's open and honest enough to say, probably a dumb decision, right? How are you going to course correct this? And have that accountability that you're walking out that fresh choice. Community matters. Marriages get better within the context of community. They heal best within the context of community. And the accountability you develop in community is bar none if you allow it to help. It's your choice still because you're inside the circle. If you go the way of the world, your friends, your community, if you will, that encouraged you, oh, you guys are just so cute together. You should get married. You get married before you deal with your junk. You bring your junk into the marriage. Your junk is discovered. And then that same community is like, man, send them packing. And you get another set of bad advice. You need Christ-centered community. It'll make a world of difference in your life. And we challenge you. Groups will change your world. The marriage ministry we're going to launch in the fall, hopefully, by then, will change your marriage's world. But we're praying for where you're at right now. Most of all, our action point or final question today is to process how can you love your spouse better today than you did yesterday? Hear me closely. I did not say how can your spouse love you better today more than she did yesterday or he did yesterday. No, how can you love your spouse inside the circle? Commit today that you're going to go to battle for your marriage. Commit today that you're not going to go at it alone. And you know what that's going to mean? You're probably going to have some real uncomfortable moments building community. But that's healthy. We're designed that way. 
And I'm going to pray that you'll have the capacity to do it. And it'll turn out beautiful. So God, a lot. That was just a lot. I think I just gave a lot of info there. A lot of passages. A lot to reference back to. But God, we need this. We need to realize we're the most important piece of this thing called marriage. We need to look in this circle at us and begin to care for our relationship with you. Get ourselves right with you, Jesus, because that, everything is under your command and your control. And if we surrender to you, if we're in the vine, love can flow through us and make an impact in the lives around us. I pray that God, you'll touch marriages that are struggling in this room. Hearts that are broken in this room would be mended. I pray that, God, you will come and and just give divine wisdom to community that exists in this room. Those that are in community together will be courageous to speak the truth in love. Be heavy on grace and salted with the truth, as your word commands us. God, I pray that you will give us wisdom in the days ahead as maybe some things come out on the table because we decide we're going to be committed, we're going to be honest, we're going to be truthful. And Lord, may we walk through the mess together. I thank you for those that are here today and those that are listening to this message. May you divinely impact marriages in our community. May you set us up to take care of this institution you designed. May we reconcile marriages. May we see marriages flourish in this city, in our region. May it be evident that you're at the center of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.